Hello, stackers. This is Rhett the DM, and I am excited to continue our ongoing World Builders series in our Creation Corner larger series. Uh, for a long time, I have had a topic in mind, and I am excited, extremely excited, that, uh, that I'm finally able to address this with somebody that has written about it recently. And I am thrilled to share that uh, my guest today is Brian from Twitter. And Brian, if you would just take a quick moment to introduce yourself before we start talking about what the topic is. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Good morning. My name is Brian, Brian Citroni. I'm on Twitter at, at Brian Citroni or Bjark the Bard. I write over at Bjark the Bard, generally DMing tips and kind of my thoughts on DMing. Wonderful. And Brian, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe how long you've been playing, what got you started, what interests you about the game, you know, whatever comes to mind in that regard. Yeah, sure, sure. So as far as playing goes, I have been playing off and on since about junior year in high school, where mm -hmm. I showed up to lunch one day, sat down at a table, and a bunch of my friends were playing this amazing game. They were throwing dice around. I had no clue what was going on, and I asked, and they were like, oh, we're playing Dungeons and & Dragons. And <laughs> I was just, I was immediately drawn in. Got a little bit of time then. Kind of fell off until I got into college. Then I played a bit in college. Um, mixed systems. Uh, Shadowrun. Uh, Pathfinder. Mm. Uh, and then finally 5th edition. And then um, over the past five years, I've kind of gotten more into the DMing side of things. Great. Great. And how have you found that? Has it been rewarding for you? Do you enjoy playing over DMing or vice versa? Or is it a mixed... I definitely will say that I prefer DMing to playing. There's something about the amount of engagement that you get as a DM and kind of being the individual that um, heads up the collaborative storytelling experience that is D&D that just really, really keeps me drawn in and passionate about it. Great, great. It's funny, uh, as you talk about your experience and your entrance into the game, uh, I learned about D&D, &D, and I've, I know I've mentioned this, probably stackers by now are rolling their eyes because they know where this is going, <laughs> but I, I learned about it in about third grade. Uh, there were a couple of friends who would go home for lunch, and they would come back, and while we're waiting in line like third graders do to go back into the classroom, uh, they would be talking about what happened during the game at lunch. And I, I was just fascinated by this <laughs> thought that a, that a game could extend beyond one session. I was used to life or, you know, whatever, where you sit down, you play it, you're done, you put it away. And then uh, to hear these kids talking about, yeah, last time, and then this time, and then next time, you know, and so this idea of a story going on and on. And I, I toyed around with the idea. I couldn't find anyone who would let me play with them. <laughs> and so I was completely on my own to imagine what this game was. And then I, like you, I kind of dropped off until I got to high school. I had somehow maybe at a book sale or garage sale or something, found a shadow run book, knew nothing about it, <laughs> bought it. And I was paging through this thing, trying to figure out what is this? And, uh, we had just moved to New Jersey and I happened to be reading that in the hallway one day and, and a guy stopped and said, what's that? And turns out he was DMing a game. And so I got roped into their group. And finally, at last, I was able to see what this game was all about. So your course has very much paralleled mine and, and uh, I feel it. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's, that's definitely quite the journey. And I, I, I definitely mm -hmm. feel that where you get bits and pieces 
moving forwards. And it just, like you said with me, it just, it drew me in the idea of this collaborative storytelling experience and the, the players that originally showed me, I think it was 3.5 at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, they were just energetic, having so much fun, everybody together. And I just, I, I remember looking at this and just going, this, this is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So for me, uh, I dropped in, I picked up a pre-existing character. It was Strider, the Ranger, go figure. And uh, (laughs) the thing was they were well, well, well into this game. They'd been playing for years together And so I, I fit into this thing and they were talking about things they had done years past. And so I, that was equally entrancing for me because here I was a newcomer trying to figure out all the history and all the, all the adventures they'd already been on. And then the excitement of being able to share in the ongoing adventures. So, I mean, just, (laughs) it captured my mind real quickly. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and that's, that's fantastic. I I knew a couple individuals that like um had been running games for just years or the same game for years and it's you're right it's it's just you're kind of in awe that you're just like you've you've made this world cooperatively over how many times sitting together at the table and it's like you said to be a part of it is just amazing yeah yeah (laughs) well we are not here to talk about our history and uh, (laughs) as fun as that is uh i wanted to quickly introduce the topic and why it's so exciting to me. And then I'd love to hear your take on it. What brought you uh, to this topic? Uh, I love food and uh, I, I love it probably more than I should. Uh, I also enjoy learning about food. And in fact, let me just pull this up here. A couple years ago, I picked up a copy of a history of food. That's and so, so cool. this yeah, uh, this was a book that I actually ran across when I was deployed mm-hmm. uh, my second time. We we took over a site that had been uh, held by a Hawaiian National Guard unit, mm-hmm. and they had established a library in this building. And one of the books on the shelves was this book. And I thought, oh, I really want to know about where food came from. You know, what? how long has it been around? How have people come to certain foods? And so uh, I unfortunately did not get my hands on it then. It disappeared. <laughs> Uh, but in later years, in fact, a couple of years ago, I found it again online and was able to pick it up. But I mean, you, you really don't think very often about where our food comes from. Why do we eat what we do? Why is cuisine what it is in certain places of the world? All these things. And some of it you can kind of figure out. It's based on availability and what grows where. But as the world economy has grown, as things have become easier to ship back and forth, we start to see exotic things appearing here. And vice versa, we are able to ship things out. So there is just so much about food. I like the idea. I, I hope to take cooking classes someday. I hope to you know, become something of a, a home chef myself. And I tinker with it now, but uh, time is not as, as kind to me as I would like. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my personal background, but I'd love to know about yours, Brian. So um, as far as me and food, I can definitely relate. I love food. Um, food has always been something very close to me. Actually, near the end of my time at high school, my first uh, part-time job was um, I went and placed my application at the local grocery store. The cards fell as they were, and there was an opening in the meat department. Um, So I got a chance to sign up and effectively be a butcher. Um, Hmm. So I started out at one store, 
work there for a little bit, learn the basics. Um, after about a year, about the time that I was getting ready to go to college, I transitioned to a uh, different location. It was a little bit uh, different environment, but the place that I went to, it was less a grocery store and it was more of a grocery store plus full experience. So, mm. um, in addition to being able to do the general meat cutting things, uh, there was a lot of cooking, uh, techniques that they wanted, uh, every employee to learn. There was pairing, huh. there was, um, kind of holiday planning, that kind of stuff. So I went here thinking I knew a decent amount about the whole procedure <laughs> and two weeks of training later was like, Oh, okay. I knew um, nothing. <laughs> exactly. It was like, you know, on top of the cuts that, you know, I didn't have much understanding of it was pairing cooking styles, um, you know, side dishes, everything like that. And they actually had a culinary team, um, oh that you could actually train with. Um, and I remained at that job for about seven years and I kind of moved all around in there. I, um, started near the end of my tenure there, transitioning over to more of preparing meals and taking that approach because over that time, uh, with all the learning I had, it was something that became first, well, I have these skills. I would like to use these outside of work. Um, and then it became an interest and then finally it became a passion from there. Learning from there, it was, um, just kind of amazing and eye opening. Like you said, getting a chance to kind of take on being a chef and cooking a bit was just absolutely amazing. Um, and, uh, growing up, I didn't have an exactly wide range of food choices. I, mm -hmm. I grew up in a it was rural turning into suburban, but the choices really weren't there. And that was kind of my first eye-opening experience to a lot of other cuisines that, you know, I had maybe only heard of or hadn't even heard of before. And from there, my passion for food has just grown. Uh, can you share maybe what your favorite type of thing to make is? Let me see right now. Um, now that it's getting a little bit warmer, I'm trying to get back into baking a little bit. Um, okay. I did scones last weekend, um, which was, it's just wonderful. Like you do scones and then like traditional. So a traditional, um, English tea would do like scones and then clotted cream, which exactly I figured out how to make the clotted cream myself. Um, I also like to do uh, like a focaccia bread. Um, mm. Besides that, I've been looking into a lot of the unleavened breads as well. Um, okay. Because I really, I, I like the the bread making aspect. I like the putting things together, the time between and the various processes. Um, and recently I've kind of been looking more towards uh, breads like pita and naan because mm. I don't really have that much familiarity with them. And I kind of want to learn more. Okay. So. Well, uh, I'm coming over after this recording <laughs> and we're going to make some bread. Yeah. You know, like you, I, I just love, I do enjoy baking. I don't do it very often. Uh, but just something about getting in and, and bearing down on that dough and getting it where yeah. you need it to be. And then, and then that smell, of course, after, after it's all done and in the oven, ugh, it's just, <laughs> it's wonderful. And I live in a fairly bread free house. I, I eat it 
mm-hmm. but the rest of my family uh, is pretty much bread averse for various oh, reasons. Oh, gotcha. And gotcha. so uh, the great thing is all the bread in the house is mine. Yeah. <laughs> 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 But um, I guess my my recent tinkering with cooking personally is uh, subscribe to a YouTube channel called Chef Forty Two Club Forty Two something like that. Stumbled across a uh, a recipe for something called gochujang chicken. It's a Korean yes, and oh, it's delicious. <laughs> it's oh, delicious. gochujang is just oh, it's it's so good. Yeah, yeah, I I have really enjoyed it, but. Um, Again, we're not here to talk about our personal culinary experiences as much as, I mean, we could talk for ages, I'm sure. Uh, obviously, we are here to talk about using food as a world-building tool. Given your article and the thoughts that you put into it, I would love to maybe get your pitch on what the article's about and maybe, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just see what happens and go from there. Sure. Sounds great. So um, the general idea of my article was because food has always been very important to me and it's been something that has always uh, played a very important role in my life, in a lot of social gatherings, coming to world building and uh, RPG settings in general, I always wonder, well, what are the people here eating? Um, And in that, in what are they eating? What story is that telling? Mm-hmm. Um, so the general uh, synopsis of my article is just talking about my process for developing a cuisine or dishes or meals that are being eaten in my setting. How I start off with a real-world analog, do a little research on that, and then I start to uh, kind of tease it, twist it a little bit add those uh, fantastical elements to it that come with the setting and uh, then finally put some finishing touches on it to make it as diverse as you would see in the real world. Okay. Well, can you give us an example, maybe something that you have done in one of your games to, to implement this? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So um, currently right now, uh, the and I talk about this a little bit in my article, is I am running a Curse of Strahd game. And those of you that are not familiar with Curse of Strahd, it takes place in the land of Barovia. It is a land shrouded in mists, so much so that the sunlight is always considered dim, enough that you know certain creatures that might be adversely affected by sunlight can walk around freely, not having any worry. Of course, uh, Curse of Strahd, if you look at the book, it's very much tied into um, vampire lore, uh, the original Dracula, uh, that kind of stuff. So with me setting up for Barovia, I went ahead and looked at my process. And looking at Curse of Strahd, looking at Barovia, I saw a lot of Slavic references there. A lot of uh, Russian uh, culture is there. It's uh, the naming system is very much that way. Mm-hmm. And it just, to me, it felt that way. Additionally, I had a little bit of uh, knowledge of Russian cuisine and cooking prior to this. So it kind of married my outside knowledge from the game with my inside knowledge from the world. Mm-hmm. So taking that, like I said, the, my first step was finding a real world analog going from there so i had the slavic recipes the traditional russian recipes but 
did some further research to kind of make sure that I had the full scope of things. And if you look at Russian recipes, a lot of traditional Russian recipes, they're very hearty. They usually have a, a root vegetable mm-hmm. or um, hearty bread or something like that as their base. And then um, they have a specific set of proteins. Uh, surprisingly in Russia, um, caviar is fairly commonplace because of the um, water that is around there and just kind of the prevalence of fish in that area, specifically sturgeons that caviar comes from. Hmm. So with that, I had my base, um, kind of knew where I was going from there. Um, so with Russian food as my base, I went and took a look at Barovia itself and said, well, what makes Barovia different from the real world? And um, there are a couple things that make it different, a couple big things. The first one I touched on is the mist. It kind of isolates Barovia, but it also shortens the growing seasons and it makes sunlight less prevalent. So immediately looking at that, I said, well, any sort of crop that is going to be really dependent on lots of sun, warm growing season, something like that, that's out. Right. Um, so there you go, your grains mostly. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the bread that you see in my Barovia usually uses the hardier grains that are available. It's not necessarily a wheat-based bread hmm. um, just because of that. Another interesting thing that you touched on with grains is um, – you won't see ale in Barovia mm. at all, mm. not anything. With that being said, I kind of focused on, um, for the cultivated uh, crops, it'd be a lot of potatoes, a lot of root vegetables that are generally a little bit hardier and can survive in that colder, harsher environment that Barovia is putting on top of my real-world analog. Um, another interesting tidbit in Barovia is... The number one wild creature out there, wild game animal, is wolves. Okay. Uh, Wolves outnumber the small game. Wolves outnumber elk, deer, anything like that. Barovia has a wolf problem, more or less. And so because of that, because they are so prevalent to the point that it causes issues with the individuals that live in Barovia... A lot of individuals actually find occupation as wolf hunters, where they're basically Mm -hmm. a forester that manages the local wolf populations. Farmer might let you know that a wolf's coming in. They'll take care of the wolves, Um, leaves you with a surplus of wolf meat. So a lot of places, if you were to go into a tavern in Barovia, you're going to find wolf on the menu, Hmm. which is in the real world. You don't see that. That's right. For a variety of reasons. It's very bizarre. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I definitely want to get to some of those more exotic foods as we progress through the conversation. mm -hmm. But I I really love the notion of, I mean, you look around you and it's obvious to us, maybe unconsciously, when you go into the store, you're going to generally see things that are available in your area. So availability is, is a big part of creating a believable world building experience. So, you know, your focus on root vegetables, things that grow underground anyway, where sunlight is not so much of a concern. Obviously, Mm -hmm. overly moist ground is not good for roots, but I mean, Mm -hmm. there are ways to work around that. Uh, So the idea of catering 
or, or pulling from the things that are immediately available, unless they're a big trading area, um, they're, they're going to be fairly limited in what's available. Yeah. And you actually bringing up trading and trade in general, the mist not only dims the light, it also isolates Barovia. So mm -hmm. it becomes very difficult for any sort of travel in and out of the region. Um, there, with the exception of maybe one group of people, the Vistani, uh, most individuals cannot come and go as they please. So, and uh, I love that you talked about this earlier, talking about kind of transportation and logistics mm -hmm. and how when we have better trade, better logistics, uh, better means of traveling back and forth, you'll see a lot more exotic foods. You'll see a lot more things that might not generally be local. With Barovia, that's not the case. Because right. it's isolated so much, a lot of things that Barovia cannot produce are either not going to be seen in there or they're going to be seen as a luxury. One of the right. things that I actually use is um, tea. Most of the time when my players either go to somebody's house or go to visit with the um, heads of the villages, uh, usually the burgomasters, they um, will often be offered tea. And uh, most of the time, it's going to be a, kind of a foraged tea. So it's uh, either going to be a pine needle tea or it's going to be other herbs that can be found out in the woods. Mm -hmm. However, if you are meeting with somebody who is very well off or somebody that wants to appear that they're well off, they might go ahead and say, well, I have the finest blend of tea from a little place called Daggerford mm -hmm. on the Sword Coast. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a far off land. <laughs> um, and of course, my party all being from the Forgotten Realms, they're like, well, yeah, we know about that. That's, you know, we've been there. And that's actually our party wizard has been starved for tea in particular. Um, mm -hmm. So it's something that strikes very real where it's like you get, you know, most of the time you are getting a tea that is very, very herbally, very, you know, it's not what you would drink normally. So getting that little taste of home is kind of a, kind of a weird feeling for them. Yeah. And boy, what a great concept, you know, the, the idea of little almost coded messages that are being passed through the things that are offered. You know, if you're new to Barovian society and you go to somebody's house and they set down a cup of this very common tea to you in normal circumstances and you just slurp it down. Okay. Um, but if you are trying to get into the culture and understand what's actually being signified by what's being put before you, there are some pretty strong messages in food and in drink. And so that's, that's a great way to add flavor to a setting, especially if you as the DM can work in, basically educate your players by serving you this. They are showing you the greatest possible honor. Uh, they are telling you something about themselves by what they set in front of you. And I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I absolutely love it um, for a variety of reasons. Like you said, it tells a story. It's giving these small little bits of information that, you know, normally might get glossed over mm -hmm. when you are running a session or you're building a world. Um, and I've, I've talked to a lot of individuals about uh, food and their games in general. And, um, you know, you have a lot of people that, you know, they might not have necessarily 
a a very strong memory with food. But those that do, those that have um, a situation where food was brought up and food was made uh, meaningfully, they're very strong memories, and they're almost always. If that's happened, somebody has a wonderful memory tied to that. Yeah, yeah. And that, that you talk about immersion <laughs> <laughs> and what an effect that can have. And again, back, going back to the storytelling element of food. Um, so a couple things, when my son and I were first putting together the world that we are running our actual play episodes through, uh, we thought, you know, it'd be great for our starting town to have a food that is tied to the region. And so deer are prevalent, just like wolves are in Barovia. And so we thought, well, what about a venison sausage? And then uh, to add that element of, uh, you know, just kind of the fun and the fantastic, um, it's also got cheese mixed in with it. And so when you sear these sausages on the stove, um, you've got these rich smells. And even if you've never had, we call them fatlings, these sausages. (laughs) So even if you've never had a fatling, a venison sausage with cheese in it, if you've been around sausage ever, you have some indication. And so tying the familiar but adding that dash of extra is helpful. Uh, additionally, as far as the storytelling elements go, in our more recent episodes, we have the players in a camp. It's a not, not a refugee camp, but more like a resistance camp. And I've made a point of mentioning, uh, because they're up in the mountains, because they're trying to hide and lie low, they are actually making a lot of soups. And what that does is that extends the, the amount of time that food will last to show some of the desperation of the situation, to show the the relative lack of food in the area, it's a soup heavy culture there, <laughs> and so you know, just trying to trying to show through minor, minor, minor story points, trying to help tell the story through food, and I just I think that's a wonderful thing that is often overlooked. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree, and I I just I especially enjoy as you were describing the food and you're evoking certain senses there. You're talking about the fatlings and how that when they're cooked, the smell, the cheese. So it kind of gets in your mind, the, the smell, the sight, the taste of what, you know, your characters or the individuals in the world that you are crafting would be eating. And then you compare that versus, you know, talking about the soup, which you are completely right. An excellent way to extend meager rations. Mm-hmm. But, uh, balancing the two out, looking at the two individually, you look at the soup, and you know it might be a thin soup, uh, kind of lacking. Um, you know, and it just to me, it just is strikingly different in details, and it's really telling those little bits of information that you're trying to do. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't help that we tend to record on Saturday morning, so starting at about 10, and so (laughs) we are pre-lunch, and one of the other players, uh, Michael, is a foodie like Uh me. You know, I I sometimes have him describe food uh, because I know he's going to put the lavish detail into it, Uh, and he he is an adventurous eater. He likes to try different cuisines from different areas, uh, heavy Indian, heavy... You know, just different cultures. And so uh, I know that he's going to tailor his food descriptions to something comparable to the area of the world that we find ourselves in. That's both good and bad because obviously he's he's adding the flavor to the world, but he's also causing us all to clutch our stomachs because we're trying not to rumble into the, <laughs> to the microphones. I definitely understand that. We, um, we play weeknights. 
So uh, I make sure before I play, I eat. <laughs> I have to eat. And that's, yeah. Some of my players have said before, they're like, did you did you not eat dinner or something? And I'm like, why? And they're like, you you really doubled down on the description of that roast and like the sautéed mushrooms. And I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. Yeah, like yeah. Well, that that doesn't help. It it doesn't help things that I also heavily discourage and even forbid eating and drinking at the table while we're recording because. I don't want crinkling wrappers. I don't want people talking with their mouths full. Unless, I mean, every now and then we simulate speaking with mouths full just because mm -hmm. they're eating in the game. But, you know, I, I don't think people want to hear me with my cheeks full of food talking into the microphone. That's actually something about your recordings that I really appreciate. It's something that I, I've heard before and I've had that situation come up where there has been the noise of, like you said, wrappers mm. crinkling or people chewing or drinking water or something like that that can like really be overwhelming um mm -hmm. in uh an audio focused media like a podcast so your uh recordings that i've listened to so far have just been crisp clean none of that and it's well don't listen to the earlier stuff then because we've come a long <laughs> way audio wise <laughs> uh, we, we are actually on our discord server we're going back and we're re-listening starting at the beginning through our actual play episodes just to relive it and to remember, oh, yeah, there was that. And I get to drop in DM notes as we go. Hey, here's what I was thinking. So it's been a fun experience in that regard. But, uh, yeah, it's been tough to go back and hear the early audio quality compared to where we are now. And, and we're not even where I'd like to be. So uh, hopefully it's a progressive thing and we can continue to improve. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other things that I really appreciated about your articles, it sounds like you might actually try to make some of the dishes that you that you insert into your games. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. That's oh. um, part of the process of me kind of learning out this food is, and especially with a lot of the cuisine that I might not be familiar with is mm -hmm. I try to give it a go myself. I try to go source the ingredients or as close as possible that I can get. And I will go ahead and make a couple dishes. It helps a lot because as I said earlier, growing up, it was kind of a narrow range of food options. So mm -hmm. um, one of the joys of doing this is I get to learn a lot more about cultures that I might not be familiar with through this as well. So like all the Slavic Russian based dishes, I knew a little bit, but through cooking, I feel like you can learn a lot about a group of people. Absolutely. And it's just it it's just wonderful to kind of explore it that way. And you just you kind of get immersed in their culture and just, you know, why they do the things they do. Um, and it tells you a lot. And on top of that, I get to try all sorts of interesting and unusual dishes that, you know, I might not normally get a chance to try. Right. But because I'm doing this, I get a chance to try it and I can just be wowed by the use of different ingredients, different spice combinations that, you know, I've never experienced before. Yeah. So a couple of things that spring to mind through your comments there. Uh, number one, if you're doing the job of dungeon master correctly, you are always learning. There's always something new to add to your repertoire, something, something that will help enhance your storytelling, your story building, your, your preparation, whatever. And boy, I mean, just adding personal knowledge of cultures around our world how much is that going to influence what you can inject into a game? That's that's amazing. And it's neat to think about all the training tools we have available to us 
to help with that. And food, I mean, you can't beat food, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, because you start looking at recipes and then you start looking at the people behind the recipes and then you start looking about the way, why did they choose that? Food is history. And, you know, you begin to, to learn about so much more than you thought you would going into it. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're completely right. And you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, this has been bouncing around in my mind for a bit. It's something that I've been very passionate about. The day that I decided to write this article, recently where I live, this uh, building has opened. It's a renovated warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that it's set up, my city... Uh, allows up-and-coming culinary individuals, so people that maybe want to do a food truck Mm -hmm. or a delivery service or a restaurant, they can rent the space, they provide the space, um, the e-commerce, or the the register, everything like that, uh, the cooking and cleaning areas. And my partner had actually visited it, said, this is something you would be into, Very much so. So we went on a Saturday and I walked in and was just blown away at, you know, there was Moroccan, there was Latin cuisine, just all in the same area. And I ended up, um, I ended up going and getting Moroccan food, which I've never had Moroccan food before. And I just went up, I looked, I picked what looked like one of the more popular dishes. It had the sides and I just sat down and ate it and it was just (laughs) The seasonings that were in there and, you know, they had a cold beet salad next Mm. to it that had some ingredients in it. And I was just completely blown away by this food because looking at it, it was a mixture that I had not experienced before and was just taken aback by how amazing it was. So I'm just sitting there eating my food and I'm like, this is this is amazing. And like, I need to go home and I need to like learn a bit about Moroccan cooking and figure out like, like the spices that are involved, the traditional dishes, that kind of stuff. And that's when I was like, yeah, Yeah. this is, this is, this is it right here. Great. Yeah. The pop-up scene is really popular here in the DC area. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we are not, we don't get it downtown very often, but there is a lot of room for that sort of temporary come in, showcase your stuff. Maybe if you're popular enough, you'll you'll be motivated to purchase your own storefront, that kind of thing. But what a neat idea to have something like that. I mean, you could inject that into a fantasy world too. Uh, you know, the, the players come across a restaurant or a tavern they really like, but next time they come, it's completely different because somebody <laughs> else has moved in temporary, you know, so you could have fun yeah. with that concept. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that would make, make a lot of sense. Like if you're building a world, if you have an area that would be uh, maybe a trade hub, um, mm, just mm-hmm. off the top of my mind, I think for the Forgotten Realms, uh, Waterdeep comes to yeah. mind on the Sword Coast just because, you know, it's kind of in a, a central location on the trade road, the caravan that the merchants take from the very south to the very north, but it's also coastal. So right. it's going to get a lot of um, ships coming in. And I feel like there you could really pull from just about anywhere. And like you said, you know, there could be a restaurant that, you know, they, they show up the tavern. It's, it's more of, you know, your standard Western European food. It's, you know, the, the, the brown stew, the crusty bread, uh, that element. But they come back and it's food from Icewind Dale or, mm-hmm. you know, any of the other places on the sword coast. Yeah. And you, you bring up a very interesting point. Uh, we tend to take our tastes with us. 
So when we travel, you know, we look for the things we're familiar with and that, that can make travel interesting if you're, if you're, especially if you're a picky eater. Personally, I like to try and fit in with the places I'm going. And so we go back to Germany and I get to, I get to eat the schnitzels that I love, that sort of thing. Uh, that, this was a problem uh, in our history. Uh, so you had, for instance, the British coming over to India and they come to India and they're used to mutton. They're used to heavy, solid food adapt- made for cold, wet climates. You want to get filled, you want to get warm through and that sort of thing. And a lot of a lot of British soldiers found that they were falling ill because it was just too much for the environment. And so now you've got other factors that help to shape what food is eaten in a certain place. And this takes us back to the whole Barovia thing. Why do they have what they have? And so a lot of the the lighter vegetable-based dishes, uh, lighter tastes, maybe a lot more spice to help make up for some of the things that are missing. Uh, and so that can help shape a region also. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true where it's, um, you know, certain dishes that are available, it's, like you said, it, it's going to really shape things. And when individuals come in and try to bring what they have available, um, you kind of you kind of see an interesting merging of the two. Uh, mm-hmm. My mind kind of goes to um, in Lord of the Rings when uh, Sam gets his little has his little container of uh, I think it was salt, yeah, spices, spices. yeah, yeah uh-huh. spices from um, from the Shire. Sam and Frodo have a conversation at one point where Frodo's just like, "Why did you bring this?" And Sam's like, "Well, we might get a chance to roast a chicken mm-hmm. or this or that." And to me, it's right there. It's you know, bringing a little bit of your home with you. Right, and how neat is that to to have a sense of place, no matter where you are. Um, so again, food is is elemental. It's it's so foundational to who we are as people, and we don't think about it enough. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And that and that's because I I've played in games where you you kind of gloss over the food, and I mean, it's not ending to the campaign. It doesn't harm it. In any way, in the sense that you don't have to really put a lot of thought into your food. However, if you do approach the food with kind of a purpose and a drive and you say, well, I want to look at what this people is eating, are eating, and why are they eating it? Maybe why is this person eating this and that person is eating that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it's details that they get sprinkled in they kind of get mixed in and it just adds to the or the the realistic nature of the world right and uh your comments there brought to mind uh, something that's been on my mind i've been reading a world war ii history book it's a personal memoir of a of a salvage diver who came to pearl harbor the day after the bombing and so they're going down into the hulks and and trying to do all the rescue operations that sort of thing one of the ships was named the ortolan this tiny bird that uh, that is now, I think it's generally illegal, if not, um, it may it may just be illegal, but it's there's this culture around eating these ortolans, and if you're not familiar with it, ortolans are these tiny birds that are caught and then cooked, and basically you eat the thing in one bite, you put the whole thing in your mouth, bones, everything, and you're supposed to wear a napkin over your head while you yes. do it. Yes. And, you know, uh, so we have this concept of forbidden foods, uh, the whole foie gras debate mm-hmm. over over the the process of making foie gras. Is it cruel? 
there's all these concepts that get wrapped up into food. Of course, there's the whole vegan, vegetarian, carnivore debate also. Yes, yes. Uh, and so you've got these these interesting dynamics with food that, again, we don't really think about, but could be an element in a game very easily. Yeah, yeah. And on a personal level, I do very much appreciate the question of ethics and uh, morality in food. Um, like I said, I spent probably close to a decade working in mm. the protein side of cooking. I did meat department. I worked on the seafood side a little bit, mm. that kind of thing. Um, and for a while I was, um, I was, I was very meat heavy in my diet. Mm -hmm. Um, but there did become a point where I started to learn a little bit more about the whole process and the ethics involved in some of the items. Mm -hmm. Uh, some of the, the foie gras is a great example. Um, veal is another mm -hmm. one that has mm -hmm. questionable morality behind it. And actually because of that, um, nowadays, um, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm, uh, I do, I'm vegetarian, but I try to be a little bit more conscious about my meat consumption, mm -hmm. uh, in general, uh, kind of try to mix in vegetarian dishes when I can, mm -hmm. um, there, I mean, besides the fact that there are some wonderful uh, vegetarian dishes out there that are flavorful and amazing, but I kind of like to um, be a little bit more ethically conscious when I'm making my meat choices. Mm -hmm. And luckily where I am now is um, I'm in a city, but it's very rural around it. it makes it a little bit easier to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take us too far off the path, uh, but there's also the, the taboo of cannibalism. There are all sorts of things that you could take food as a direction in games and really play with taboos, play with uh, thinking. I mean, obviously for us in the United States, eating dog is out of the question. Mm -hmm. And yet in other places of the world, that's, that's very much a thing or insects or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's weird, especially last year or yeah, in 2020 with the, with the cicada brood how many recipes about cicadas uh, popped up. And, you know, I'm curious. I'm not that curious. <laughs> I, I'm in a situation where I've seen a lot of the insect-based recipes, and mm -hmm. I like the idea, mm -hmm. and I would like to try them. Mm -hmm. However, there's a certain factor there. And like you said, it's a taboo because a lot of people, the argument, to, well, why aren't you eating insects is, well, what are crabs? What are yeah. lobsters? Mm -hmm. You know, they are large underwater bugs, you know, not to turn anybody's stomach, but it's just, there's something there. I've, um, I've looked into, uh, at least with crickets, they do make like a, um, it's almost like a cricket flower hmm. analog that you can use to kind of get yourself accustomed to it. Right. Uh, and obviously, I mean, they're plentiful. Uh, it's easy to, it's very sustainable. Uh, and there's really no downside other than the mental downside. <laughs> I like to think that if I can get myself accustomed to some of the, what we would consider less quality uh, products out there, I could travel anywhere in this world. I could go places and eat stuff like menudo or other dishes where it's organ meat or whatever. And if I'm used to it, if I've accustomed my tastes to it, then I could travel anywhere and not feel, Ugh, you know, I can't do anything here because... <laughs> I don't know what I'm eating. 
Yeah. Uh, it's it's just one of those things that uh, it, it would take an effort of will for me to to take that step. But I think once I did it, I would be happy I did it. Yeah, yeah. I definitely understand that. And I've actually, in my time, I have kind of tried to sample some of mm. the weirder elements. I've tried a bit of organ meat when it's been available to me. And you're very much right. It's definitely a willpower thing where it's, um, you know, I've had liver and liver. I'm not crazy about it like some people are, but, you know, I can eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had heart before. Mm. Um, heart is very similar to uh, just it's it's a muscle. Mm-hmm, sure. But because of what it's doing, it's going to taste a little bit more iron rich. Mm-hmm, um, sure. It's also a bit tougher because it does a lot more work. Mm-hmm. But you're very right. It's it's very much um, kind of a uh, an experience of trying to get used to being able to eat something mm. like that. I think we could continue to talk about a lot of these things, a lot of directions. Um, I think I want to make one more point of focus, and then I think we'll need to, to wrap this one. I am happy to have you back to talk <laughs> about this more. I mean, there's just so much here. I love the idea when you, as a DM, you're always looking for ways to immerse your players. Have you thought of maybe cooking up some of the things that you're going, you know, are going to appear in a game, and then actually serve it as they come into a tavern or something? Um, so I play mostly virtually, so okay, it's sure. kind of difficult. Yeah, well, it's kind of difficult for me to do that. However, this can come up in Curse of Strahd that there can be a chance for your party to be invited by Strahd von Zarevich to Castle Ravenloft for a dinner, hmm. and this chapter in the book goes into great detail on the food Mm. and what's in it. And it's been one of those things where with this group, I think we've been playing for, we're coming up on two years. Great. And they have not gotten a situation where they've eaten with Strahd yet. If it were to come up, it's going to be something where I say, is there any way that we can all meet up in person? And it's, we we're all up and down the East coast. So Mm. it might be a little bit of juggling, but it's always something that I've wanted to do. Um, when I played in person, food was always close to us playing, be it, you know, we would always have specific snacks that we would eat that would sure. tie us into the memory of uh, the game. That's We had a running joke about, you know, me or one other person bringing a bag of baby carrots and then <laughs> proceeding to just destroy that entire bag of baby carrots over the course of the evening. That's always been something I wanted to do. I actually, in college used to do Lord of the Rings watch parties. Mm. But we would do, we called it a Hobbit's Feast oh. ahead of time. We found a couple, um, one of my, uh, somebody I went to college with actually found, and I think I have the website somewhere, where it was somebody went and did like a thesis on the food in Lord of the Rings mm. and talked about tying it back to some of the traditional British cooking mm-hmm. of the time. Um, and they gave recipes for a lot of the things that are mentioned in the book. So we would go ahead, we would take a look at that, and we would just make as much as possible. Probably spend the morning cooking and setting everything up and sit there and you know make sure that we have a meal for each one of the hobbits' meals. Breakfast, second breakfast, elevensies. <laughs> um, and we'd, we'd set all this food out. Now, unfortunately, because you know we spent the morning making all that food and then consuming that food there were at least a few times where i would get to the second movie and pass right out (laughs) of course (laughs) 
but it was always a cool additional element to kind of tie in and it just it would pull your your, your taste and your your sense of smell into what you were doing and that's for me especially in a virtual setting where sometimes immersion can be difficult mm-hmm. uh, being able to tie as many senses in as possible is something i really like to do absolutely and i'm i'm glad you you realize that uh, so often, especially smell and taste, it's easy to talk about sight, it's easy to talk about hearing, maybe even touch, but but smell and taste are often put to the side because those are difficult to capture in words. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're so powerful, and the two of those are inextricably linked uh, because smell is so important to taste, and those are both important to memory. Uh, so if you can find ways to engage those two senses in particular, you're tapping into your players' minds in a way that you're not used to. Yeah, exactly. And that's um, something I have actually started doing when I play is I actually have um, a couple different candles mm-hmm. uh, that I'll use. I recently met a candle maker actually through the Twitter community mm-hmm. and Who is a that? variety pack. Uh, it's going to be Delve Okay, is the company. And I bought their bag of scent holding, which is um, instead of normal sized candles, it's little tea light samplers of each of their candles. And with the tea light, uh, the recommendation is you burn it for three to four hours. Mm -hmm. Three to four hours is perfect for me for a game night. I give it a little time before I start up, let the smell kind of hit the room. um, And then it'll usually burn out around the time that I'm doing my debrief after everyone has logged off. Mm -hmm. But in using these candles, I've found that scent is very strongly tied to memory, which is what a lot of people say. So mm-hmm. I start associating certain smells with, you know, it's D&D night or, you know, it's time to go to Barovia, something like that. And like you said, it just it pulls immersion in yeah, uh, just it, a little bit more. Sure, sure. And I want to make sure that we highlight Delve candles. We'll make sure to mention them specifically in our show notes. Oh, um, yeah. I'll send yeah. you the information. Great. And I, I'm actually, I think we follow each other on Twitter. So, yeah, um, yeah we'll, we'll make sure to highlight that. Uh, interestingly, to the point of memory and smell, uh, one of the first indicators that somebody is perhaps pre-Alzheimer's is a loss of sense of smell. And so um, something about the connection between remembering smells and your overall memory is just so tightly bound. I think Wizards of the Coast is actually cluing into this because they fairly recently released their Heroes Feast source book. Yes, I actually, um, one of my other players is very big on cooking. I got them that for Christmas. Oh, wow. Um, and it was one of those where I was like, I might get it for myself. <laughs> but I, I had so many irons in the fire at that point that I was like, I don't think I'm going to get to it. And this player in particular is a person that they'll do something and they'll get really excited about it and they'll Mm -hmm. share about it. So I was like, yeah, here you go. Cook through the recipes. And there've been a couple that have been done and shows and I'm just like, that's so cool. I absolutely love that. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm, I'm really hoping to get into that myself. I'd love to get that book and just see what kinds of things they put in there. Um, yeah, like, like I said, Brian, we could talk about this all day and I'm more than happy to come (laughs) back and revisit the topic with you because there's obviously so much more we could do. Uh, but I think for now, we're going to go ahead and wrap this episode. If you want to take a moment again to revisit how we can find you and, uh, and we'll, we'll consider this one good. Yeah, sure. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time today. This has been great. And like you said, 
you know, in the future, I'd love to come back and talk more because I can talk about food all day long. <laughs> so uh, I'm most easily reached through social media on Twitter. Um, the handle is going to be Bjark the Bard or it's at and then my name, which I'll let you put in the show notes mm-hmm. because my last name can be a little bit difficult to spell. Besides that, uh, my website is Bjark the Bard. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Bjark with a J. Um, bjarkthebard.com and um, I do right now I'm doing weekly articles Um, it's generally it's a mix of um, in-game things so like uh, I talked about food recently Um, I've talked about my thoughts on running horror and kind of the the extra stuff that needs to be done in there and then it's also talking about some out of um, game elements some non-world building stuff so like how to set up a schedule to avoid cancellations and um, doing mid-game debriefs to yeah. kind of make sure that everybody is enjoying themselves mm-hmm. and topics like that. Yeah, sounds great. I've read definitely your food article and uh, I, I really like your writing style. And so stackers, if you are at all interested in getting a DM's thoughts on various, I mean, multitudinous aspects of, of running games, of enhancing games, Check them out. I think it's equally beneficial for DMs and players. Uh, It's always good for players to understand what a DM's life consists of. So check it out. Check the show notes for links on how to get there. Brian, thank you very much for joining us. And I've enjoyed this conversation probably more than I should have. (laughs) And I'm I'm feeling hungry for lunch now. And it's only (laughs) nine in the morning. I look forward to getting to know you better and to having more conversations like these. Fantastic. Yeah, this is this has been excellent. I do look forward to talking with you. Great. Stackers, what did you think? Uh, have you considered food as elements in your games? If so, how have you implemented it? What have you done with it? We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at stackodice or by email at stack.o.dice at gmail.com. Check us out on our new Discord server. We'd love to see you there for more real-time conversations. And we will see you here again next time, right here at Stack of Dice.